Well, when you think about the Christian life, um, there's a built-in tension in the Christian life. There's a lot of different tensions, but the one I'm referring to specifically is the tension that comes because we're supposed to be distinct, we're supposed to be holy, and we're supposed to be separate from the world in one sense, and yet at the same time, God doesn't take us out of the world And we're supposed to be distinct, but we're supposed to be living in the world. And we're supposed to be ministering to people and on mission. And we're supposed to people in the world, we're supposed to be working and playing and interacting with unbelievers all the time. And so if you've tried to live that out faithfully, that's there's a tension there in how we're supposed to do that for believers. We're to to maintain a lifestyle that is distinct, and yet at the same time, we're to live in the midst of a culture that is certainly not distinct, that is unholy. And so if, if you properly maintain that tension there, it's sort of like walking on a balance beam. And Christians tend to fall off of that balance beam in one direction or the other. On this side... People, Christians, tend to assimilate to the world. They, they tend to fall off the beam by becoming like the world. As we live among unbelievers, as we live in our culture, as we take in media, whatever it may be, we sort of drift into this assimilation of the world. We become like unbelievers. And so our thoughts, our desires, our ambitions, our goals tend to reflect the world. And we become like the world. And on the other side of that balance beam is the other problem, which is that rather than assimilating, we know we're supposed to be distinct, and so we sort of pull away from the world. And we create these Christian subcultures where you can live and work and play with only believers, and we don't interact with unbelievers at all, and we fail to be on mission in the world as Christ has called us to. And so both of those are issues. Both of those are problems. Assimilation on this side and then pulling away from the world and uh, failing to be on mission, any meaningful mission in the world on this side. And so as followers of Christ, we're supposed to maintain that tension. We're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be different. And at the same time, we're to be on mission and actively engaging with the unbelieving culture and the unbelieving world in order to share the gospel. And so we have to walk that balance beam of doing both at the same time. And it's hard. And anytime we're doing that, it takes reevaluation and readjustment and rethinking on how we live and how we fulfill the mission while being holy. And it takes a proper understanding of what we're going to talk about today from Mark chapter 9. So you can turn there. You can see it on the screen, Mark chapter 9. Being distinct disciples is what we're addressing. And that's what we're going to learn from Jesus today. So what we're doing is we're continuing on this road. It's a journey, right? Jesus and his disciples are on this journey from north of Israel, Caesarea Philippi, and they're on this journey south, and they're going to eventually land in Jerusalem where uh, Passion Week is going to take place in the last few chapters of Mark. But right now, they're on this journey, and it's a journey where they're focusing, Jesus is focusing his attention specifically on his disciples. And we see over and over again here that the instruction that he's giving goes to them. He wants them to learn what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow Christ. And so his person, his work, 
has specific application to their lives as they attempt to follow him by grace. And so last time when we looked at chapter 9, verses, I think it was 30 to 37, we saw Jesus go back over the basics again. He goes over the second time, the fact that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to die, he's going to suffer, and then he presses on his disciples again the implications of that for their lives. Look back at verse 35. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And this is how they're to be distinct. Rather than mimicking the world, the greatness of the world, the ambition of the world, they are to learn to be great by serving, humbly serving, sacrificially others, and particularly the weakest around them and the most vulnerable around them. And so today is really a further application of that. And it's pressing that principle of being a servant to all into the disciples' lives further. And it's them learning how to be disciples. And this time it's going to be how they are salt, how are they distinct as disciples so that they can be useful and have an impact on the world around them. And that's what we're looking at today. So we're going to study two attitudes of disciples that make them distinct and useful. So two attitudes, these are perspectives, these are ways of being in the world. As you try to stay on that balance beam, two attitudes of disciples that make them distinct and useful. And the first one of these is that disciples are to be charitable to others. Verses 38, and actually it goes all the way through verse 42. Uh, That is wrong on the screen, but it's verses 38 to 42, and it's there to be charitable to others. So last time we saw Jesus and the disciples making this journey south, and they end up in Capernaum, which is right around the Sea of Galilee. Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they don't answer. Verse 34 explains why. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so we talked last time about how how clear it is that the disciples are not getting what Jesus is telling them. They're not grasping the importance of his death, and they're not grasping what his death and his suffering and his sacrifice for them means for their own walk, for their own discipleship, for their own perspective. They're still mimicking the world and pursuing greatness by arguing with one another about who should be the greatest. And so Jesus teaches them very clearly. Look back at verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child. Remember the weakest, the most vulnerable in that that culture of the time, the Roman Empire. He took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. It's a pretty clear instruction, and we would hope that the disciples would start to understand and start to get this, and they don't, and so we get more instruction along those lines. Look at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, we don't know exactly when this took place, but clearly the disciples still aren't getting it. They're not getting the principle of being the servant to all. And here's, here's what I mean by that. They'd seen a man casting out demons, doing works, and it was in the name of Jesus. 
which ironically enough, casting out demons was something that they had just been unable to do earlier in chapter 9. And so this guy is able to do it in the name of Jesus. So some connection to Christ. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they had tried to stop him. They didn't want him doing it. And what's interesting here is the reasons why John gives for why they tried to stop him. Look at the end of verse 38. They say, John says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, there are a couple of major problems with why John says that they tried to stop Jesus. First of all, they reject, or not stop Jesus, stop this man here. They reject this man because he's not formally a part of their group. Who is this guy? How is he able to cast out demons? You probably are asking yourself those questions. I don't know. And the text doesn't tell us. He's not the point of the text. He's almost like a foil so that we can understand more about this principle of being a distinct disciple and a servant. And so Jesus can teach the disciples here. The point of this is the instruction that Jesus gives to the disciples. But he gives that instruction because they're misunderstanding or because of the reasons that they give for why they tried to stop him. They stop him because he's not a part of their group. He's an outsider, and they don't like that. And the second reason they stop him is, look at what they say here. He was not following us. It's a little presumptuous for the disciples to say us and include themselves in the group here as the reason to be followed, right? They don't say, we we tried to stop him because he's not following you, Jesus. But hey, it's our group and he's not following us. And so they include themselves with Jesus here as the ones who should be followed. Now, when you read John's explanation here and his recounting of this story, it really smacks of arrogance and a little bit of tribalism. You know, we're the only ones who are doing it right and you have to follow us. And if you're on the outside of our group, then you're not really, you're not really following Christ. And the call to discipleship is a call to sacrifice and to service, not entitlement and privilege. And I think what John is feeling and what he explains here is a sense of entitlement and privilege. He feels like I'm a part of the in-group, and I think he's viewing the kingdom as a way for personal advancement. And so he's frustrated that someone on the outside is doing what the other disciples couldn't do. And so Jesus responds and gives some more instruction here in verses 39 to 41. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, when I first explain that this guy is outside the group of the disciples and that they should be charitable to him and charitable to others. Maybe some of you are thinking that Jesus and is and what I want is for us to just have no doctrinal convictions and just sort of to be open to anyone and really gracious to any point of view and any theological conviction. Well, that's not what is being what we're being called to at all here. Jesus is not calling the disciples to be have a lack of discernment. Being charitable doesn't mean we eliminate biblical convictions and biblical lines. And you know that here because of the way this man is tied to Jesus. Jesus makes his connection to him very clear. We don't know how this connection came to be, but look. I mean, John even says he was casting out demons in your name. 
And Jesus says in verse 39, anyone who does a mighty work in my name won't be able to speak evil of me. Verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. This man is for us. And even in verse 41, he says, anyone who gives a disciple a cup of water because you belong to Christ in a supportive way of the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ is not going to lose his reward. And so this man has a connection to Christ. He's doing ministry. We don't understand all the details because of Christ and through the name of Christ. And so the disciples ought to have responded to this man with grace and charity and kindness. And so I think the problem here with the disciples is they were trying to advance their own kingdom. They were worried about building their reputations, building their greatness, and advancing their own position. And so basically, this is another round of the argument of verse of the problem in verse 34. Look back up there. They'd kept silent for on the way. They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They're demonstrating that now. They've not gotten this. And now it's affecting other people and the way they respond to other people. They're not just arguing amongst themselves. They perceive themselves as having superiority over others. And so verse 41 gives you the positive result of grace and charity to others, kindness toward others, even those outside of their normal circles. So you got the positive thing here in verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Again, this is serving others in the name of Christ. This is what it means to be a disciple. And then in verse 42, now you get a warning in how we treat others. Having charity to others, there's a warning to this as well. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, the little ones mentioned here, I think this man would be an example of a little one. But he's not talking specifically about children here. He's talking about any disciple who is following Christ. And Jesus is warning here, and we need to listen well to this warning. He's warning that living in such a way that causes the faith of another follower of Christ to stumble or trip up will bring great destruction on you. To trip up, cause their faith to stumble. In our house right now, we have almost a two-year-old gray. We also have a dog. And... Two-year-olds and dogs share a similar talent. They are able to silently slide up right behind you as you're standing at the kitchen counter and position themselves without you knowing it so that if you take any step backwards at all, you will step on a paw or a foot and you will tumble backwards over them trying to catch yourself and they will trip you up. And if you do not catch yourself when you trip, it can cause great damage to you. Serious damage can occur. And that's the picture here. When your life is positioned and is being lived in such a way that it causes someone else to trip up, to stumble, causes damage to their faith, Christ is warning that there will be serious consequences to that. Now, most of us don't think through the ways that our lives can cause others to trip up or to be damaged, their faith. We don't think through the way that our actions, our words, our social media presence, 
our attitudes. We don't think through the ways that those things can cause other people to trip or to stumble. But it certainly can and certainly does happen. Now, I think sometimes we tend to dismiss believers causing others to stumble because we think people so often use the hypocrisy of believers as an excuse for not coming to church, for not following Christ. And so we see that and we sort of buck against that and we're like, no, you are responsible for your own choices. And that's true. You are responsible for that. But Jesus is also warning us here that if my hypocrisy is a means that contributes to this other person's stumbling and to their tripping up, then I have placed myself in a very grave situation. I need to be aware of the way my actions impact and my attitudes and my words impact other people. Now, I know as I say that, some of you may be sitting there and you're thinking, I've messed up in the past. And there is no doubt in my mind that my actions have negatively impacted someone else, maybe even your own children. So what would God have me do? Well, I think the answer to that is to demonstrate that you're a follower of Christ by showcasing the gospel. What is the gospel, the truth about Christ and who he is, teach us to do? Teaches us to repent, to turn from our sins, and to ask forgiveness for our sins. That is a gospel response to my sin, to when I have wronged someone. And so if you are aware, if you're sitting there thinking of something you've done that has wronged someone in the past, then I would say repent of that sin and seek their forgiveness and lay it out before them. That's a gospel response. And for parents who still have kids living in your house like I do in mine, we are going to sin against our kids. And the best way to put the gospel on display is to ask your kids for forgiveness, to acknowledge when you were angry When you raised your voice and you shouldn't, acknowledge that to them and ask for their forgiveness and seek their forgiveness. We ought to be models of humbly asking for forgiveness. And so I don't think Jesus here is talking about someone who repents and seeks forgiveness of someone that they have knowingly or unknowingly wronged. I think what he's talking about here is an arrogant attitude that dismisses others and dismisses my own hypocrisy and drives the other person away by misrepresenting Christ, by valuing things that aren't of value to Christ. And the warning here is pretty dramatic, something we have to wrestle with. Look back at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. We don't use millstones a whole lot, at least I don't think you do. But here's a picture of one, all right? Pretty weighty. Now, the image that's being given here is not that you're being tied to this, but that instead of that pole going through the millstone, your neck goes through that hole in the middle of it. And it's sort of like a collar around your neck and you're tossed into the ocean. That's the picture that's being given here. So that's a sober warning for us to be aware of how our lives and attitudes and actions are impacting others and endeavoring to imitate Christ by being charitable to other people. That's what makes us distinct as disciples. That should set us apart from everyone else living in the world. We, you know this, but we live in a culture of antagonism, of tribalism, 
of attacking other people because they hold beliefs different from us. And that doesn't mean we don't hold our beliefs firmly, but it does mean that we speak and act with charity toward others, particularly as representatives of Jesus Christ. Because this warning is definitely in the Bible and Jesus gives it. And it's very clear here. So to be a distinct disciple, we have to be charitable to others as we reflect Christ. And to be a distinct disciple, we also have to be committed to holiness. And this is 43 through 50. You have to be committed to holiness. Disciples have to deny self, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Now look at verse 42. He's talking about our relationship with others, being charitable to others. And now in verse 43 through verse through the end of the chapter, or yeah, through the end of the chapter, really, he switches gears and starts talking about our own holiness and how we ourselves are tripped up. We don't want to trip others up. We don't want to cause others to stumble, to lack in faith, but we also don't want to have our own walk with Christ be tripped up. So in verses 43 to 47, he gives three examples of what this looks like, three illustrations, and he's illustrating the same point. And I'm going to read this whole section to you, okay? Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell into hell. Now you can see as I read that each example is parallel and they all make the same point. They're all structured in the same way. You have three body parts that are mentioned here, representative of you, your hand, your foot, and your eye. Those are important body parts. And as important as they are, if they are a means of stumbling, causing you to stumble and causing you to sin, it would be better for you to enter life without any of them than for you to have those and be whole physically and to keep on sinning and to end up in eternal judgment and in hell. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He's not telling us to all go this afternoon and amputate a limb so that we won't sin. Even if you tear your eyes out, you still will fall into lust. But don't let the fact that it's hyperbole take away from the impact of what he's saying here. The point here is the importance of the disciples' commitment to personal holiness and personally dealing with sin. And the stakes are high. The stakes are dramatic. I don't know if you've heard of a guy named Aaron Ralston. The name probably doesn't ring a bell. But on April 26th in 2003, Aaron is an outdoorsman, a mountaineer, loves being outdoors. At that time, I think he was 26 or 27. And he went out alone to explore a canyon in southeast Utah. He's going to go hiking. It's the desert. So he's going to spend the day out there, and he wasn't planning on being gone overnight. It gets cold in the desert at night, and so he didn't take a jacket with him, and he didn't take very much food or very much water. He had about 12 ounces of water with him. He also didn't tell anyone where he was going, which is never a good idea if you're going hiking in the desert in Utah. 
So he'd been out there for a few hours, and he's just enjoying uh, God's creation. And at about 2.40 in the afternoon, he's jumping over these boulders, and he steps on an 800-pound boulder, and the boulder shifts underneath him. And he falls into a crevice, and the boulder falls into a crevice, and his right arm gets pinned between the 800-pound boulder and the wall of the crevice. And so he's stuck there. At first, he tries calling for help, but he realizes real quickly that's not going to work. He's going to lose his voice. And I won't tell you every detail, but after five days of being stuck in that position, and he's getting close to death, he's running out of water, Aaron figured that the only way he was going to get out of this situation was that he would have to break his own arm, and he'd have to cut it off using his multi-tool knife. And so that's what he did. And he climbed out of the crevice, rappelled down a 65-foot wall, and hiked out of the canyon where another family found him. Talk about a dramatic family outing. (laughs) Another family runs into him. Obviously, they call for help. He gets out, and he's still alive today. And we hear that story, and the human will to live is powerful. And we love stories like that because it demonstrates how much we want to live and how we will go to great lengths to survive, to keep ourselves alive. Why don't we apply the same intensity to the fight against sin? And that's what Jesus is saying here. And I think the reason, the reason I don't apply the same intensity, and maybe the reason you don't apply the same passion, the same aggressiveness to the fight against sin, is because we really don't believe that the stakes are that high. You see, Aaron knew in that crevice with that boulder pinning his arm up against the wall, he knew this is life or death. If I don't do this, if I don't spend the rest of my life without my right arm, I will die in this crevice pinned under this boulder. That's what's going to happen. It was a clear decision in front of him. He had two options and he knew. And the thing is, is that our fight against sin, our decision to make the effort by grace to battle sin with intensity is just as dramatic. And actually, it's even more dramatic and the stakes are even higher. So what is Jesus saying about the attitude of a disciple here towards sin? I think John Piper sums this up pretty well. He's speaking about the passage in, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus essentially says the same thing here. Your right hand offends you, cut it off. And Piper says this, Jesus said, if you don't fight lust, you won't go to heaven. Not that saints always succeed. The issue is that we resolve to fight, not that we succeed flawlessly. Resolve to fight. Now, as you're seeing this here, especially that first sentence, If you don't fight lust, you won't go to heaven. If you read that and you think that Piper is saying you can lose your salvation, then you need to think more carefully about faith and about salvation and what happens when you're truly saved. The kind of faith that justifies, the kind of faith that brings you into the kingdom by the work of Christ the kind of faith that connects the work of Christ to you by which you are declared righteous, that is the kind of faith that sanctifies. It's the same faith. The faith that justifies 
is the faith that grows you in holiness and that sanctifies you. It's not two different kinds. So when you recognize your sin as heinous in God's eyes and you see Christ as glorious and his sacrifice is what you need in order to go to heaven, to be with him, to have your sins forgiven. When you know the work of Christ and what he did for us on the cross and when you trust in that and believe in that work and rest in that work, that belief, that faith that justifies is the same faith that grows you and that sanctifies you. And that results in you and I denying self, taking up our cross, and following him. It's the same thing. And if you have this one, this one will happen. And if this one's not happening to some level, and if there's not some fight taking place against sin, then you don't have this one. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And this fight has massive implications. Look back at verse 48. He finishes this. He's talked about hell several times in this passage. But look at this in verse 48. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Describing hell in a little bit more detail there. Now, he's saying the stakes are high. Eternal consequences. Eternal destiny is at stake here. But what's interesting about this in verse 48 here is this is actually a quote from the very last chapter in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 24. The very end of the book of Isaiah. Now, why is Jesus doing that here? Why is he alluding to the end of the book of Isaiah? I mean, he's making a pretty strong point about sin and about the eternal consequences of fighting against sin and how disciples have to be committed to holiness. So why allude to Isaiah here? What's going on? Well, at the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, the author, is sort of bringing everything together, and he's summarizing the choice that is in front of the people of Israel. So let me go back and just give you a quick summary. In Isaiah, the book begins with God's indictment on Israel for their idolatry and their sin. They have been corrupt. They have sinned. And because of that sin, God is going to bring judgment on them and exile They're going to leave the promised land under the control of a foreign army, and they're going to live in exile. But in the midst of that promise of judgment in exile, God also promises that deliverance will come, and God will be faithful to his people and to the promises to his people. And that deliverance will come through a suffering servant who's going to come in the future. And the people will not only be delivered from exile, but they'll be delivered from their own sin. And that suffering servant is talked about in Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, several times in there. And then at the end of the book in Isaiah 56 through 66, everything comes together and he's looking toward the future. And he's saying God's plan in the future is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and everything will be made new and all of God's promises will be fulfilled and it will be glorious. And all of this will happen through the suffering servant and his work. But even in those last chapters, as God promises life and promises a glorious future, there are also warnings in those last chapters. Those who continue to reject him will suffer eternal separation and judgment at his hand. He promises both judgment and glory in those last few chapters of the book of Isaiah. Look at this promise of judgment here in Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, 
and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. I mean, this is in this chapter. If you read the whole chapter, it's about this glorious future that's going to happen. And yet in that, God's salvation will come through judgment that's also going to happen. Both are going to take place. And so now at the very end of the book, the last few verses, he brings everything together and he talks about both of these eternal destinies. Let me show you these last couple of verses in Isaiah. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Those who follow me, those who are committed to me. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And then look at this promise of judgment to those who reject him. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for, and here's what Jesus quotes, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Pretty dramatic words there. But what is Jesus doing? Why, why quote this in Mark 9 when he's talking about sin and commitment to holiness and cutting off your arm? Why quote this here? He evokes this passage because the fight against sin has eternal consequences and the stakes could not be higher. It's the same stakes in Isaiah 66 that Jesus has in Mark 9. There are two ultimate results. Those who deny self and fight sin will enter into eternal life because of the work of Christ. Because denying self and fighting sin is the result of being in Christ. It's the same faith that justifies, sanctifies. And those who think sin is not that big of a deal, who love their physical life more than eternal life, will enter into eternal judgment. And that's what he describes here. So then he goes on, brings the whole thing to a close in verses 49 and 50. He gives the reasons why the disciples have to take up this personal commitment to holiness. Look at verse 49. For everyone, all disciples, will be salted with fire. Now, these are two interesting images to bring together, right? Salted with fire. What's he talking about here? Salt and fire are the two images, and it's a little confusing, but let me try to explain. Salt, you're familiar with, I don't know if you know this, but salt was used on sacrifices in the Old Testament. So Leviticus chapter 2, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Okay, so salt goes with sacrifices. And it was added to sacrifices as an indication that this sacrifice was being offered because the one who was offering it was a partaker of the covenant with God because God commanded it. And then fire, salted with fire, fire was just used in verse 48. And here it's talking about trials, suffering, and judgment. Jesus has just spoken about the necessity of his disciples to take up their cross, deny self, even through difficulties, through suffering. And so I think this metaphor here, you to be salted with fire, is to you and I are to be sacrifices to the Lord that are offered to him. And our offering to him means that we will go through suffering, through difficulty, and through trials. That's our destiny as disciples. We will be salted. We will be sacrifices to him who go through difficulty as we fight sin, as we follow him, as we deny self. And all of that is because we're 
partakers of the covenant with him through Christ. Kind of reminds you of another passage in the New Testament, doesn't it? Living sacrifices, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I've appealed to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. To help you understand this, here's a quote from a commentator I thought made it clear. In the present context, fire and salt appear to be symbols of the trials and costs of discipleship. Discipleship to Jesus lays a total claim on one's life. In the language of sacrifice, it must be totally consuming or it is worthless. So we're to be salted with fire. We are to offer ourselves as sacrifices to him completely and totally in all of our lives. And we will go through difficulty and trials and, and suffering. And it's to be totally consuming or it's not a, a worthy sacrifice. Now look at verse 50. Salt is good. <laughs> to be a, a sacrifice that is offered to God is a good thing. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? We are to be set apart. We are to be distinct in our offering to God. To be set apart means to be set aside. To be holy means to be unique. There were holy vessels. There were normal vessels. The holy ones were used in the tabernacle and the the temple in ministry to God. Disciples are to be the same thing. They're to be unique. They're to be set apart. We are claimed for religious purposes. But if we don't maintain that distinction, then we're worthless vessels. So as we think about maintaining that distinction and being committed to holiness, go back to those three metaphors. Your hands, your feet, and your eyes. All right? Your hands talk about what you do. Your feet talk about where you go. And your eyes talk about what you see. In all of those different areas, you and I are to be set apart and unique sacrifices to God as we pursue holiness. And that's why he ends the way he does in verse 50. Look there. Have salt in yourselves and going all the way back to our first attitude, being charitable to others, be at peace with one another. Those two things will make you distinct. Be charitable to others and be committed to personal holiness. When we pursue those two attitudes, we'll be distinct, we'll be useful followers of Christ, but you can only pursue those two attitudes as you respond to the work of Christ. And that's the whole point of this section on discipleship. Respond to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And these things will take place in your life and they ought to take place in your life. And so that work of Christ on the cross is what we're going to celebrate now in the Lord's Supper. So pray with me and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for this passage. There are some tough metaphors some tough things to understand, but the point is clear, I think. We are to be charitable to others. The way we relate to others is important. We are to be committed to personal holiness. And all of this because of you, because of your suffering and death. And so I pray that you would put these truths on our heart, help these things to sink in deeply. And even now, as we think about the work of Christ, As we rejoice in our sins being forgiven and what you've done, I pray that that would overflow into charity to others 
and a commitment to personal holiness. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. 